Glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're going to be stepping into a new chapter, Luke chapter 14. We'll be working through the first four, 14 verses. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there and kind of get settled in the passage. Uh, and, and just to get it in your mind, a frame of reference, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's determined. Uh, he's set his face to Jerusalem. He's headed there. And, and Luke hasn't given us an exactly chronological account to that set of events. But every event we've studied in these recent weeks since the end of Luke 9, has been Jesus uh, on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill the purposes for which his father sent him, to die on a cross, to rise on the third day, and provide uh, to uh, us, his people, his own righteousness. So, so that's what Jesus is doing. And along the way, he faces different issues, if you will. Today, the, the issue he faces or confronts uh, most directly is humility. So I named that sermon a uh, piece of humble pie, and I was going to make some corny jokes about, you know, he's going to serve up a piece of humble pie, pull up a seat to the table, eat your humble pie, things like that. I decided not to do that, so you don't have to worry about the corny jokes. Um, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but he is about to serve up uh, and confront some arrogance. This isn't the first time he's done that. Truth is, apparently the Jews, and I think it's probably just the Jews, right, that, that deal or struggle with pride in their own hearts and arrogance. And so he had to deal with this, this topic or this confront this reality over and over again. So, so the first time we dealt with it, or maybe not even the first time, but the last time we dealt with it, I provided you a definition. It's not a point of the sermon. I just want you to have this definition kind of floating around in your mind. So if you remember it, great. If you, if you weren't here or don't remember it, well, I just want to... I want to serve you and kind of get this in your head before we get going. And it's from Spurgeon. And one of the ways that he would have defined uh, humility. If you don't like this definition, you can take it up with him. Uh, don't complain to me. I just think it's a, a worthy one. He says, humility is to think of yourself if you can as God thinks of you. Let me say it again. Humility is to think of yourself if you can as God thinks of you. Of you. I appreciate this definition because then sometimes when we go into humility, we're all about trying to push ourselves down into the dirt and think so little of ourselves that we don't recognize the, the image of God in us even. But most of us don't reside in a place where, or, or if we reside so deep down in the dirt, oftentimes it's, it's a reverse pride where we're so, so far gone that God can't possibly reach us. But this puts us in the proper position. Below God, but not completely worthless. Not too much value, but not too little. So I want that floating around in your head. I want that definition to kind of be, begin to inform uh, as we use the word, as I use the word humility today. I want that to kind of be the definition we work with. So let's read the passage, and then uh, I, I think uh, you'll see uh, where we're going. One Sabbath... Every time a passage starts off like that in Luke, it's kind of setting up a trouble, right? It's something you should be celebrating a Sabbath, but, but for Jesus, there was there seemingly always trouble. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, It is lawful to heal, is it, I'm sorry, he asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? 
And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I'm just going to give you the point of the sermon, the, 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 the main point that I'm going to seek to Build out right now. In his gospel, Jesus confronts our greatest idol and obstacle to knowing the joy of salvation. In his gospel, Jesus confronts our greatest idol and obstacle to knowing the joy of salvation. He's not talking about an idol that sits in a building. He's not looking at a statue that we would bow to or burn incense before. He's not speaking about some heart idol uh, like an attitude or a motivation, like control, approval, comfort, those things. He is confronting our greatest idol and the greatest obstruction between us and the joy of salvation. Ourself. And he puts these people, he confronts them, he cares enough Even by these people who are seeking to provoke him and cause him trouble, he cares about them enough to confront this idol. So at least they have the opportunity. And he does it, there's really four episodes to this this banquet. We're going to study the fourth one next week. But we're going to see this done in three episodes this week. The first episode is, is on the Sabbath Here's Jesus on the Sabbath going into this, this house, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, and we know he was invited there because it tells us in verse 12 that he approached or spoke to the man who invited him. So we know he didn't just wander in off the street and just happen to be there. He was asked to come in, and pretty quickly we begin to see why he was invited in. They were keeping a close watch on him. They didn't long to hang out with Jesus just for the sake of hanging out with Jesus. They were seeking to trip him up, to catch him in something, to, to, to provoke him in such a way that he might say something that was, was in error or, or, uh, or do something that would demonstrate him someone not to be trusted. And he walks in, he comes into the, the banquet, he comes into dinner, it's on a Sabbath, likely after the time of synagogue, and here's this, this meal going to be laid out. He walks into this man's house, and behold, there's this man with dropsy. 
Dropsy is also called edema. And I'll just I'll forewarn you right now. I didn't call any doctor friends or nurse friends or anybody to find out about edema. I looked it up on WebMD. So if, if I'm wrong about edema, edema, I don't even know if I'm saying it right now. You say it enough times, it sounds weirder and weirder, right? So I'm just going to stop. But the swell is, it, what it is, it's swelling in your tissue. But it's never a problem just for the sake of it's just swelling. Like, oh, well, they're swelling. There's, it's, it's always a symptom of something deeper. Am I right? Okay, I'm getting nods from people who go to medical school so, or, or have, have had medical training. So I feel pretty good now. I'm feeling a little more secure in this explanation. So here's this guy who has this symptom that has resulted in swelling of his tissue. It's kind of like an allergic reaction. You guys maybe have seen the movie uh, Hitch. You know, Will, uh, Will Smith is playing the, the guy who sets guys up and helps them um, uh, figure out how to meet and date women. And, and he goes out and he's trying to impress this girl and he eats uh, shellfish, even though he knows he's allergic, and poof, his face blows up, right? The symptom is the swelling. The, the issue is his allergic reaction. Like, he shouldn't be eating that. Literally, it could kill some people. They're so allergic. But here's the thing is edema is, is caused by sometimes even greater issues than just an allergic reaction. Uh, 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 heart failure, liver disease. I had a friend, a, a guy I worked with for a number of years, back years ago when I was at American Eagle Airlines. I'd just gotten out of the Army, and i getting to know this guy. He was a, he was a crew chief, a, kind of a manager, middle, middle, middle management position, and he had, I think it was cirrhosis, but his liver was going, it was beginning to fail him. And the closer he got to death, the bigger he swole up. And here's this guy. Now just so you can picture this and see what's going on. Here's this guy. That in every other instance, these people would have shunned. Because to have him near them would potentially cause them to be impure and unable to sit at the table and have dinner. But here's Jesus. And behold, it just so happens they have this guy with dropsy. You see, every commentary, co commentary I read from, I read from about 25 uh, before I preach every passage. It's not... Partly because I'm not smart enough to come up with the stuff on my own, but, but I just want to have a well-informed perspective. And very seldom do they all agree about something, but it seems this week as I prepared and read those commentaries, it seems that they all agree. This was a trap. They were setting Jesus up. They were setting a trap for him so that he would come in and do something that they would say is unlawful therefore demonstrate himself to not be the righteous man he would have claimed to be and they would be able to reject him. But hey, he's Jesus, right? He's not so easy to corner. He's not easy to catch that way. He's God in flesh, right? So here's Jesus. And he walks in and he sees this man. And rather than just stumbling into their trap, he asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They are silent. They don't say anything. In fact, they can't say anything. See, if they say, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, what they do is deny the teaching, the, the, the overarching or the common teaching of the rabbis of the day. What they do is begin to reject the, those in authority over them in their religion. So they can't say, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But they can't say no either. 
See, in all likelihood, these people didn't understand that there was some underlying cause to dropsy or some underlying, that, that dropsy was just a symptom of something else. Probably, at, at the place we, they were at at that time, probably they saw dropsy just as something that was going to kill you. And if they said no, it's not lawful, then they come off as uncompassionate. I, I think that's right. Like a people with no compassion. They come off as jerks. So they're stuck. And so Jesus, who they're trying to trap, kind of traps them in their own inconsistency and in their own idolatry. In fact, he traps them in their own self-righteousness. See, because it's the job of the Israelite, it's the job of the Jew to prove himself righteous by his works. Imagine picking up that weight every day. What is it to carry your own righteousness on your shoulders? Here's the reality. Here is the reality. Because of his gospel, Jesus shows us that growing in humility is greater than maintaining our own self-righteousness. Remember what, remember what we're saying humility is. is seeing ourselves as God sees us. And because of the gospel, we can step into the light as the sinful people we are and not be crushed and not be burned up, but find ourselves buoyed, find ourselves healed. So we don't have to pretend that there's an underlying issue within us that causes us, causes us to swell and, 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 and puts us at the place of death. We don't have to be those people. Because Jesus has come and he stepped into our banquet and said, Hey, you're broken. You're sinful. You're depraved, but let me heal you. Let me send you on your way. Because of Jesus and his gospel, we can grow in humility. We no longer have to carry the weight of our own self-righteousness. We can set down the works that, that we think in some way demonstrate we have attained something. We can stand free in the midst of his grace. Even in a room like this, we can confess we are sinners. Every last one of us, ruined by sin, deserving of death. Deserving of condemnation, deserving of eternal separation from this glorious God who created us, but then chose to save us. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. So Jesus sticks these guys in a place where they can't speak. They can't even answer because they're forced. If they, if they did, they'd be forced to admit. We can't do it. But you know, if, if the issue was close enough to, to me, if it was my son 
or my ox. I'd pull him out. But I don't, I don't know this man. See, another reason we know this guy didn't belong here. This guy didn't belong there. That's why he didn't sit down after he was healed. He didn't sit down at the table to eat dinner. He left. He went on his way. They didn't want him there. They didn't invite him to stay. They let him go. Because of the gospel, we can set down the weight of our self-righteousness and enjoy the glory of the righteousness that's imputed to us by the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, I was a sinner. Yes, I still have a flesh that struggles and desires things other than God my Savior. Yes, I still wrestle with the, with the heart that desires something other than Him. But by His cross, I am clean. I am counted righteous. When the gavel falls, he says not guilty. And the same as you trust in Christ is true for you. Stepping out and seeing ourselves as God sees us is a whole lot better than carrying a weight that will ultimately, eventually crush us. In the second episode, Jesus reveals a better way to find yourself seated in a position of honor. And we need to be careful because he's not seeking to, to reestablish some, some uh, banquet etiquette or dinner etiquette. It's, it's not what he's ultimately going for. He's really dealing with the heart issues of these people. But he kind of confronts them. He sees what's happening. So here's how it would work. So in that day at a banquet, what would happen is it set the tables up kind of in a horseshoe shape. So there would be, there would be a set of tables that, that, that uh, were kind of the central tables. And then there would be legs that would come off of those tables kind of in a horseshoe uh, position. And at the very center table, at the very center seat, that would be the position of honor. So kind of at the peak of the U of the horseshoe, there would be the seat of honor. And the most honored person at the banquet would sit in that place. But the closer you were to that place demonstrated a greater level of honor on you than those who were at the edges or at the fringes. So kind of like, here's, what, here's how we see it happening in, in, in our circles today, right? So, so, so a lot of times the positions of honor are in the front of a room. Like you pay more for a seat at the front of the play than those at the balcony. Like if you go into Juanita K. Hammonds, the cheap seats, you got, you got to have binoculars to see what's going on the stage, right? But the, but the seats of honor, the seats of prestige are those that are down at the front where you can see everything clearly. And nothing blocks your view. And that's the whole idea. And so, so their desire, the desire of these Pharisees, what Jesus perceives as their choosing the seats of honor, their desire is to be the man sitting at the center, or maybe they wouldn't be so, just so overt in their pursuit of honor. Maybe, maybe they wouldn't try that center seat, but they'd try the seat on the left or on the right. You know, we're not going to go too far. Right? We, don't, we don't show ourselves to be really what we want, how we desire these things. And so what was happening was they were competing. So a guy would come up, he'd set his cup down on the table, you know, and he'd kind of claim his spot, and he'd go over and talk to somebody, and somebody else would slip in and move that cup down a seat, and they'd take that seat. Well, then off they'd go to talk to somebody before the dinner started, and no, somebody else would slip in, and they're always vying, always competing, always trying to promote themselves to the top. And Jesus says, oh, you know, really, it's, it's better be humble 
than it is to be humiliated. It's better to take that low seat and be asked to move up than to take that high seat and have to take a walk of shame. It is better to be humble than it is to be humiliated. In fact, because of Jesus and his gospel, growing in humility is greater than a life devoted to self-promotion. Isn't that the world that we live in? I mean, isn't that, the, isn't that what's going on all around us? Get on Facebook. What do you, what do you think people put forward in their, in their selfies? You think we're seeing the truth what's behind those selfies? In light of the gospel, no longer do we have to be self-righteous. In the light of the gospel, we can be honest about our sin. We can even delve into the depths of our depravity. And here's the promise. At the depths of our depravity, as we're honest about our sin, the promise is God's grace will always prove sufficient. Here's the other promise. He has promoted you. I'll speak about myself. I'm going to confront you in a minute, so I'll start with myself now. I don't deserve to be at the table. Not only do I not deserve a seat on the left or on the right, I don't even deserve to be in the room. Walk with me sometime. Sit down and hear my thoughts. Struggle with the emotions and the, and the depths of my depravity. I was fortunate enough this week to be with a group of pastors. There was a, uh, I'm in a cohort, and we lean in on, def, de, not, I almost said defend. I mean, sometimes we defend one another. That's not the purpose. It was support, just encourage one another along the way. And this week, we, last Monday, actually, we, we met up early in the morning. We spent the day, and, and we, we went out of town and uh, spent the day and the night and, then, and part of the next day together. And the man's name is Doug Shivers. I have a lot of respect for him. He's had a lot of years in the ministries. I'm lear I, I learn from him every time I sit with him. And he said something that, that surprised me, not, not, because of, not because I wouldn't have expected it from him, because he felt so free to say it in a group of pastors. But he told us, he said, you know, we were talking about just the struggles and the trouble that we face and how sin is waiting outside of every one of our doors and and it's so easy to get tripped up, stumble, and then fall into sin, disqualify ourselves, and potentially, potentially lose what, what is a vocation. Not primarily, but what does ultimately feed our families. There's a lot of pressure for that. But he told me, he told us as we were talking about that, and, and we were fighting, not fighting, we were, we were struggling and wrestling with this idea. He says, you know... The farther I go and the more mature I become, the more I realize I am depraved deeply. He said, I'm not getting more sinful. I'm just realizing more and more how sinful I really am. This is a guy that didn't start ministry a week ago. He's been in ministry for, since he was 16 years old. I think that's like 30-some years. I think he's been a pastor at Boulevard Baptist for 23 And he is realizing more and more how deep his depravity goes. You see, what surprised me is he doesn't, he doesn't stand up seeking to convince us of how good he is. And he didn't stand up and tell us how, to, how, how he was promoting something of his. 
He was ultimately just glorifying our Savior. That a guy like him would be saved. And a guy like him would be used of God to make his word known and his son visible. There's not one of us that have to carry the weight of self-promotion. It's not one of us that have to carry the weight of self-righteousness because Jesus has done for us what we long to be done. He comes to you. He doesn't just invite you into the room. He asks you to take a seat at his table. Humility is way better than humiliation. Being humble is so much better than self-promotion. And the, tr- the truth is, I mean, this, this idea is all across the scripture that he exalts the humble, gives them honor that isn't intrinsically theirs. He exalts the humble and assigns value that's not intrinsically theirs. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become right, the righteousness of God. He exalts the humble, but he humiliates the self-promoters. Psalm 138, verse 6, for though, they, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, that's the proud, that's the arrogant, the haughty, the self-promoter, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3, verse 34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. His grace is always sufficient, it's always there. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we promote ourselves, as we stand in arrogance, we're working against him. We are on opposite sides of him. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Because of Jesus and his gospel, growing in humility is greater than a life devoted to self promotion. Then there's the third episode. Jesus turns his attention to the man who invited him to his host and again deals with the the depths of this guy's heart. And he tells him, hey, when you throw a party, don't invite people that can repay you. Don't invite people doing some noble deed on the surface that really just gives you some payback Don't do things just out of self-interest. He turns this idea on his head. See, see what would happen? And here's what was going on. So here's the the rulers of the Pharisees. And what's happening is this guy was inviting people into his dinner, honoring them, not because he just wanted to honor them, but because he wanted to be honored by them in the days and weeks to come. Hey, I invited you to lunch, so where's my invitation? He didn't do it out of a noble motive. He did it out of a desire to see himself uh, uh, gain something. He did, he did it out of a desire of, of his own self-interest. Jesus turns that on his head and he says, Hey, hey, don't invite people that can repay you. And look who he talks to. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those, they, they don't deserve to be at your table. First off, in, in his mind, there, there were people that had no place in his house. But not only that, they could not repay him. But look at his promise. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
Because of Jesus and his gospel, growing in humility is greater than a life motivated by self-interest. We no longer have to seek to get ours. Our life doesn't have to be built on the desire to fulfill my own desires and my own interests because Jesus, of what he has done, because of his work on the cross and in the resurrection, we now are given much more than we could gain on our own. In his gospel, Jesus confronts our greatest idol and obstacle to knowing the joy of our salvation, our self. Get this. Jesus isn't stopping at idols of approval. Those motives that, that reveal to us that there's something wrong. He's not talking about our, our motives of control, like, oh, I just gotta, I, I gotta do things in such a way that everybody likes me and approves of me. I gotta do things in such a way that I have control because if I do it right, if I do it, it'll be done right. It'll be done best. He's not just seeking after our idols of comfort. Well, I do what I do, so ultimately I can be very comfortable. Yeah, those things are in there, but he doesn't stop. At that level, he drills right down deep into our hearts and confronts us. We are that idol. We are the greatest obstruction to enjoying the depths and the fullness of his salvation. And here's the thing. The selfie world... This selfie world that that Jesus is confronting here doesn't just exist in the days of Pharisees and Sadducees and and, and the law and the temple. It doesn't exist just back then. It exists today. It's as real today as it has ever been. Think about it. I mean, we live in a selfie world. We're putting our faces front and center at every opportunity we get We stand in front of the glory of God's creation and we put our face in front so that everybody sees us first. Hey, and and, and think about this. You know, when when your life is not as perfect, when it's not as picture perfect as your selfie life, when your real life is not as picture perfect as your selfie life, well, hey, you don't have to look any further but yourself. Look within Be true to who you are. For a couple of generations now, the idea, and maybe it goes even further than this, I I don't honestly know, but but I I know for at least a couple of generations, we have been promoting self-esteem as one of the keys, one of the major keys to being happy. If you just feel good about yourself, you'll be happy. If you're not happy, you must not feel good about yourself. You know what's happened over the last couple of generations as we've promoted that idea? We're finding that people still aren't happy. We raise our kids, boosting their self-esteem, seeking to make them think much of themselves. And they grow up and they're angry. And they're upset with their parents. And so what's happened is the the body of evidence, and I, I read a couple of articles this week. One was from Berkeley, one was from Harvard, just smart people with lots of credentials behind their name, way more than I've got, and so I'm sure they know more than I do. Uh, but but what's, what, what they're seeing, 
what they're studying is that because we have so focused on self-esteem, it's not fulfilling its promise. The evidence is overwhelming. And so what a lot of these people are now going to is, oh, it's not just self-esteem you need. You also need self-compassion. So think highly of yourself, but not too highly because you know that just, that's arrogant. But if you think too lowly, let's puff you up. Let's tell you how great you are, how amazing you can be. You could be anything you want to be. I want to be president. No, can't do it. I don't have a degree that's required. I don't have, uh, well, I don't have the money. I don't have the connections. Man, I'm disappointed. I grew up wanting to be a pilot. And then I found out I don't like math. Actually, I wanted to be an astronaut first. So I started way high, right? So I set my goals up there. <coughs> wanted to be an astronaut. I don't like math. <laughs> Can't stand it, in fact. Can't, couldn't believe they made me take so much of it in school. The worst part was when I went back for seminary and, and, and all that stuff. When I went back, they made me take college out. I'm like, what in the world for? I'm going to hire people to do the books. I don't need to know how to add and subtract, much less foil. Come on. What does that mean? But here's the deal. I didn't like math, so, so uh, I had to lower that down a little bit. I thought, I'll be a pilot in the Air Force. I love the idea of flying a fighter jet. sounds so amazing. Then I found out the requirements were, like, were, were just nearly identical. You, you know the astronauts are, are pilots in the Air Force, I was like, well, probably ought not do that. I'm going to fall. Talk about humble somebody. Fall in front of her. <laughs> not going to do that. So this Army recruiter comes along, and I find out the Army has attack helicopters. And that sounded so manly to me. But he convinced me. He's like, oh, well, you know, it's difficult to go that way. It's difficult to become a pilot right in as you join the Army. You've got to get letters from senators. And I'm like, well, I don't know any senators. It's like, hey, do you have to know math? No, you don't have to care. No, nobody cares about math in the Army. That's the ticket. I'll figure it out. He says, join the Army, be a mechanic, and work your way up. That didn't work either. But I did find that I found a job that I was really pretty decent at, and I enjoyed. Here's, here's the reality, though. I, I, I thought that I had to find a way to make myself look good in the world. And I thought I was going to do it through this vocation. And graciously, gloriously, God showed me. It wasn't about what I did or how good I looked to other people or what kind of credentials. See, the reality is this. What they found is that as we have stuffed our kids full of this idea of self-esteem, we have given them a standard they can't live up to. And we have to figure out how to give them self-compassion. Room to fail. Room to not succeed. Room to not be perfect. And you know what? Here's, here's, the, here's the deepest, darkest part of that issue. Is that that's not going to work either. Because at the end of that, at the end of that, we are still focused on self. We're still looking to ourselves to fix our problems. Our kids don't need self-esteem or self compassion any more than they need algebra to make it to heaven. I'm not saying don't go to college and don't learn algebra. That's not, hear me. It doesn't fix us. What they need from us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Self-esteem and self-compassion will leave us in the dark. 
But the gospel moves us into the light so we can set down the weight of our self-righteousness, so we can set down the weight of our self-promotion, and we can set down the weight of our self-interest, and we can see what the one who has come and died in our place and for our sin has done and has promised to give us. That's what our children need. But, but here's the thing is that the selfie world doesn't just exist out there. It doesn't just exist in, in a time gone by. Our selfie world exists right here. It is as likely to be as rich and real in this, in, in this room inside these walls. Church ministry programs. Sanctuaries. And the way they're designed. And even sometimes, oftentimes, our worship services and sermons are designed to feed our insatiable desires for entertainment. They are designed to elicit some superficial emotional response. Or even worse, they are designed to stroke our inflated egos. In this selfie world that the church resides, we become the judge of what is good worship and what isn't. So people walk in and, and, and they have this experience and they come to this place and they, they, they leave and they might say something like, oh man, worship was awesome today. God really moved among his people today. But I wonder how many of us are actually asking the question if God thought our worship was awesome this day. See, I, I'm afraid that our standard misses the mark. I'm afraid that we determine how good worship was not on how clearly the glory of God was on display, but on how moved we felt in our emotions. We determine whether God moved or not, not on what tangible fruit was borne out, but how we feel. I just wonder. In this selfie world that the church resides in, does he receive our worship as awesome? Or is it just another event in a long list of self-righteous, self-promoting, self-interested, self-worship events? <laughs> Told you it was going to get real in a minute. In this selfie world that we live, just like in our pictures, even the church, even the church is as likely to reflect our faces rather than the image of its Savior. So much so, so much so, that even the glorious gospel of his grace Grace, it's, it's undeserved. Like we don't, we don't belong here. We don't, we, don't, we don't deserve this. 
We can't earn it. Like, we can't get enough done to pay him back. We can't earn it from him. And it is unobligated. He didn't have to offer it. Undeserved, unearned, unobligated. And somehow, yet we still turn this and make it so much about us that we miss the glory of God in his gospel. I came across a video, this is a couple months ago, I don't know when I came across it, and I wrestled with showing it to you because some of you may have posted it on your Facebook thinking it was a great video, and, and I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I, I don't know if you've posted it. I'm hardly ever on Facebook anymore because it just frustrates me, and I, it reveals my sins, so I just leave it alone. But here's the thing is, in this video I'm going to show you, or I have shown to you, I, I want to say something before you see it. So a guy named Todd White. And I don't know if you know Todd White. Not, honestly, that's not my greatest concern. I want you to hear me say this, though. I'm not just trying to beat Todd White up. It's not my de- desire to defame him or make him look small anyway. I got a little worked up after the, after the video in the first service. I'm going to do my best not to do that this time because it, it is not about making him look small or making him look wrong. There's much of what he says that I would agree with. Much of what he says in this clip... And even the context around the clip, I would agree with. But he casts it in such a perspective that I think we need to see how easily deceived we can be. I think Todd White's probably a brother. I think he's a Christian brother. And I want to I help you see how easily deceived we can be even within the church so that the next time it happens in front of you, you can identify it. So let's show the video. See, the cross to me isn't the revelation of my sin. The cross is actually the revealing of my value. Mm. So sin is horrible, and it, it covered this. Since we were covered by sin, but Jesus paid a price. He who knew no sin became sin, so that I might become something. So if he became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, then the cross is the revelation of my value. See, in the world, if I'm going to pay for something, I'm only going to pay what something's worth. Like if I were to sell somebody a, a house and a realtor and, and say, listen, this house right here, I want you to give me, you know, two and a half million for this house, but it's only worth $70,000 in the market. It doesn't make any sense. and You'd never give somebody that for it because it's not worth it. And a car is the same. If you were going to go buy a new car and that car was, you knew it was worth $22,000 brand new, right? And that was the sticker price on it. But they wanted to charge you four times that. You would never do it because it wasn't worth it. Well, if something on the earth, the price that you pay for it determines its value, how much did heaven pay? Mm. How much did Jesus pay Mm. to get us back? I mean, heaven went bankrupt. So the value of a person is determined by the price that was paid for. And when you see the price that heaven paid for you on the cross, your whole life will change. The cross is a testimony to our value and not our sin. That's a lie. We are some way intrinsically worth the price paid for us? Absolutely not. 
He didn't look down on us and say, they're worth your life, son. Go give it. He looks down on us and sees our sin. He sees we're worth nothing. He sees we have no value except his love for us. And if, if, if we're so valuable that we didn't need the cross to demonstrate and pay for the price of our sin, why in the world did God kill his son? We are not worth the death of our perfect, holy, righteous Savior. You and I do not deserve the invitation to his table. You and I hold no intrinsic value to God except his image that we have marred. John Piper says it horribly skews the meaning of the cross when contemporary prophets of self-esteem say that the cross is a witness to my infinite worth. The biblical perspective is that the cross is a witness to the infinite worth of God's glory and a witness to the immensity of the sin of my pride. And yet here we are in the church still standing up and saying we deserve it. We are worth it. Heaven went bankrupt. I hope not. I was promised an inheritance. I was told there's something to look forward to. What's he waiting for me to step in and make it better? Is he waiting for me to step in and, and get the party started? Thanks for saving me, Jesus. Heaven saved on your... Uh, you got it now. Look, I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. Remember, humility is about seeing ourselves as God sees us. He does demonstrate our value to him in the cross. But when you look, when you look at the cross, it is not intended for you to stand up and bow your chest out as if you deserve to be at the foot of it. The value that God places on you should turn your eyes to the one who intrinsically impute, or I'm sorry, imputed his value to you. You are valuable because of Jesus. You are, are, are righteous because of Jesus. You are, uh, you're, you're worth something because of Jesus. And rather than standing up and bowing out your chest and trying to stand on your own and present yourself as righteous and to, to promote yourself as as, as, as worthy and to, to work in your own self-interest. The call of the cross is to see Jesus as the one who gave you everything. Not to be trapped in the idol of self. I'll tell you just in closing a story of two men. One, the first was named Narcissus from Greek mythology. I won't tell you the whole story. In fact, there's a couple of different variations depending on, on where you read the story at. But, but essentially, Narcissus was a, was a beautiful person. Like, he was a, apparently a lot to look at. He was, he was just great to look at. And he angered one of the, one of the gods. And, and one of the gods, and, and, and that god, decided to get even with him. 
And so Narcissus was lured into the woods and he came upon a pond in the woods and he leaned over and he saw his reflection and what he saw he immediately fell deeply in love with and he was caught in a trap of self-love. He couldn't leave. He was alone looking at a reflection that would eventually fade away and lead to his death. And then there's this other man. This other man, he was well-known, had all the popularity. People were coming from all over to hear from him. They longed to hear him teach. And they thought of him as a prophet, as one who had been sent by God. And when they approached him and said, are you the one we've been waiting on? Are you the prophet that was promised? He says, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. His name is John the Baptist. And by all rights, John the Baptist could stand and claim, I have done something. And everybody looking on would have thought, yeah, you did. But he wouldn't. In fact, when he was pressed, are you the Messiah? I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Then, as his ministry began to shrink, and as people left John to follow Jesus, some of his followers came and said, hey, they're all leaving. Well, how do we maintain this? How do we keep your note? How do we, how do, how do we promote you? How do we, how do we go after your self-interest? How do we present you as one that, that's righteous and that people can come to? How do we do this? He says... Real simply, John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. Hey, humility is way better because we in it, we get to enjoy the fullness of God's salvation through the gospel. So get out of your own way. Put your eyes on Christ. Follow him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, grateful for your glory and grace being revealed through your word. And I would ask today, Father, I would ask that you would move on us. It wouldn't just be some emotion that lasts for a moment, but that that there would be eternal and tangible fruit born out in our lives. If there would be any here today that have never trusted you but are trying to promote themselves to to your position, trying to work in their own self-interest and seeking to stand and prove their own self-righteousness, Open their eyes today, Father. Help them to see the truth. And Father, for those of yours here, those of your, your, your children in this room, help us to be grateful. Help us to be satisfied with our position at the table that we might walk humbly and find ourselves exalted. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.